Hey, podcast listeners, hope you're doing well, and I hope you are winning contracts. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to share something with you that's working for our clients. Our federal access knowledge base is helping companies win contracts every single day. I regularly get emails from members thanking us and saying things like, hey, I just won a $2 million contract. Many of you have seen a video that Chris Danback shot for us at GovCon. Chris won two contracts totaling $30 million. One of our members emailed me this morning and said, the turning point that opened my eyes was using federal access to establish a professional and systematic business development and RFP process. I've now won two contracts worth $480,000. Federal access is helping a lot of companies win. It can help you too. So here's the deal. I have a special offer for you. Visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers today and get started for just $29. You're going to get access Access to a digital copy of the government sales manual, over 70 strategy videos, more than 30 webinars, 300 documents and templates, and one of my favorite pieces is SME support. So when you run into any issue, any challenge at all, you can email me directly for help. So go check out the special offer today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. The link is in the description below the podcast. So go check that out today, federal-access.com forward slash game changers so you can get started for just $29 today. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. My name is Michael Lejeune and I will be your host today on Game Changers. I want to get right into the show by welcoming our guest, Robert Jones. Robert is the founder of Left Brain Professionals. Robert, welcome, and please take a minute to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your company. Thank you, Michael. Uh, just a quick background on me, a mixture of government contracts and accounting, and I really work where the two come together. Some people see uh, government contracts and accounting as separate functions, but as you dive into the government contracts, especially the various types of TNM and cost plus, understanding the contract type and the regulations really does a lot to drive your accounting system set up, reporting, uh, and other functions. When you're small, this is very intimidating. Am, am I right? Uh, it is intimidating. I, my general experience is that a lot of small business owners are very good at the product or service that they provide but they struggle with a lot of those back office functions, uh, mm -hmm. accounting kind of being near the top of the list. Yeah. And then when you add in the complexity of government contracts on top of that, it's e even more bewildering for a lot of people. Yeah, so especially if you're, if you're brand new to government contracting listening today, I think we're going to try to demystify a lot of this stuff and make it a lot easier for you to, to really wrap your mind around. Because the topic today is implementing an approved accounting system. And I think when most companies think accounting systems, they think either in very, very simple terms like QuickBooks or something like that, or they think in very complex or enterprise level stuff such as SAP, Dynamics, Sage, or some other big system, but the consistent thing that most companies face is they don't know where to start, especially in this this realm of getting an approved system, or, or should I say a government-approved system. So let's dive in and give folks some basics of why this topic is so important to government contractors. First off, what is an approved system? 
So an approved system is more than the software. Some people think that if they simply buy a brand name software that all of a sudden they've uh, magically going to be approved and that's not true. Your accounting system includes the policies, procedures, all of your software that's, that relates. So it's not just accounting, whether that's QuickBooks or some other program. But if you're using um, a timesheet program or project management program or anything else that connects to your accounting and affects that data, all of those become part of your accounting system, as do any of the reports and any previous audit results. So whether you've had an external or internal audits, uh, could even be a financial audit. Um, that you know, A lot of companies get audits or reviews of their financial statements. Uh, the findings from those all come into play because you have to have a gap approved system and you know we there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle and and the results of those can help auditors understand you know what's going on uh, in your business I am familiar with gap uh, I don't know if everybody who is listening on here is could you explain that a little bit for folks sure so gap is the generally accepted accounting principles um, it's uh, the basic principles that everybody uh, is supposed to follow. There is a, um, you know, especially if you're a large company, then there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot more regulations, especially if you're publicly traded, SEC and things, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission come into play. But even as a small company, there are a lot of fundamental um, accounting policies or procedures that uh, we're supposed to be following. And then if you're a government contractor, Things like uh, FAR 31, which is the Federal Acquisition Regulation. Uh, FAR 31 deals with cost principles. Um, the DCAA, which is the Defense Contract uh, Auditing Agency, uh, they're often viewed as the primary government auditors. Uh, uh, certainly, if you're in the DOD realm, um, they have their own uh, uh, kind of policies and procedures, audit guidelines that they do. You have CAS, which is which are the cost accounting standards, um, those kind of overlay. And if you think in terms, if you try to compare FAR 31 and CAS to GAAP, remember I said that GAAP, uh, there are some more stringent GAAP guidelines for very large companies. And so CAS is kind of the equivalent. If you're a very large company, you're going to have to comply with all aspects of CAS. Um, but even as a small company, even though you may not have a CAS-covered contract, uh, there are some principles within CAS that you still need to follow. And I think this leads perfectly into my next question here of why do government contractors need an approved system? And you, you started to touch on some of those, but what are, what are the basics? Why do government contractors need an approved system and, and kind of what are the benefits of that for them? Well, primarily, the government wants to know that you are spending the money appropriately, that you uh, are properly tracking your expenses, that you're accumulating uh, all of your costs appropriately, that you're segregating direct costs from indirect costs, and that your indirect costs are being properly allocated to your final cost objectives. So, you know, direct costs are essentially those things that uh, are spent directly, you know, servicing your customer, whether it's providing the service in the form of labor or it could be materials, travel, ODCs, or something else that's directly relatable to an end project. Your indirect costs are things like 
fringe, which is your health insurance, employer taxes, overhead, which are those expenses that you need to support clients in general. Uh, it's not uh, expenses that are directly attributable to uh, a contract or a project, but it, you know, they're expenses that you have to incur to basically you know, keep customers happy and, and to manage those things. And then the, the other primary pool is G&A, uh, which is your general and administrative. And that's things like your um, IT department, your accounting department, HR. And the government just wants to make sure that you're accumulating all of those costs appropriately and that you're allocating um, them out appropriately to all of the contracts. Yeah, that, I mean, it totally makes sense. Now, I, I want to back up for just a moment. And because I, I, this is a slight little rabbit trail here, but I think it's super important for a lot of people because there are there are people who are listening who are brand new to government contracting. But I've actually run into clients that were 60 and 70 and 80 million dollar companies that didn't have an approved accounting system. And I, I mean, I don't know how you get that big without that, but there, there are companies that big. When does this come into play for government contracting? Is, is it on certain contract types? Is it all contracts across the board? When do you really need to look at getting this approved accounting system when you're in the government contracting space? That's a great question. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, companies that are 60 and $80 million that don't have it. And that's true. It's, it's not terribly uncommon to come across, uh, you know, a good medium sized company uh, with significant revenue that doesn't have an approved system. Uh, sometimes that happens because they have a mixture of government and commercial work and maybe they haven't had enough government work uh, to, to be on the radar uh, to have an approved system. But the real factor that drives that is the contract type. So if you are doing T&M, which is time and materials, or a cost reimbursable type of contract, so that might be a cost plus fixed fee or a cost plus award fee, a cost plus incentive fee. Um, you definitely have to have an approved system for that. And that's true at both the prime and the subcontract level. So some people think, oh, I'm never going to be a prime. I don't have to have an approved system. And that's not true. If you are a subcontractor and you're doing cost reimbursable work to a prime on a government contract, uh, you still need to have an approved system. Mm. I, I think that is a huge point for people to understand because I think they're are people who started listening to this and said, well, you know, I'm probably just going to be a sub most of my life. And then they heard that and went, Oh, I better pay attention. <laughs> you know, that that's a big distinction there for people who think, well, I just don't need that. I don't need to pay attention to that or anything like that. So it is a big distinction. And it's, a, it's also important for subs because even if, and I'm with you, I hear, I hear clients sometimes say, I'm always going to be a sub. I don't have any interest in being a prime, but a lot of, Companies, you know, they think that for a while and then they get a taste of the government contracts and they realize they like it and they realize they want to do more. And sometimes their customer or somebody else invites them to be a prime. Sometimes the prime that they were working with kind of steps aside and, you know, and gives them an opportunity to step up. And so even if you're a sub, I'm always about continuous improvement and looking forward to the future. Don't wait until. You're all, you know, you're now ready to bid on that prime contract, and you haven't done any of the homework to prepare yourself. There are a lot of these pieces and uh, of the puzzle that you can work on over time, so that when you do decide to go after a prime contract, um, that you're prepared. 
There's another interesting piece in here as well, and that has to do with these large uh, Max or GWAX, which are those um, uh, multiple award contracts. So if you think of like some of the big GSA uh, or the you know, big contracts like that, even if the type of work that you do and you're and you only expect to to be awarded a fixed price uh, task order, the fact that the contract itself issues TNM and cost reimbursable uh, task orders means that you still need to have an approved system uh, in order to bid on that. And you'll see that in these uh, RFPs that come out that having an approved system is either required or strongly encouraged and it gives you more points in the evaluation process because the government has the potential to issue all three of those contract types. Mm. I, again, I think that's it's very important for people to understand that. One, just getting ahead of the curve on that because wouldn't it be horrible if, if a, a contract opportunity shows up on RFP and you're going through and you're a perfect fit except you don't have an approved system. And that's the one thing, you know, and a lot of times contracts are very competitive. So every edge you can get is very, very important. And so something like this that you could do and just choose not to, you wouldn't want that to limit you getting a contract. So I I definitely agree in getting ahead of the game on that. So how do contractors get approval for their system? Because the the thing that you intrigued me right out of the gate in this conversation was it's not about the software, you know, you, you, the software is just a piece of this. It isn't going down to Walmart and grabbing a copy of QuickBooks or getting online and grabbing a copy of whatever. This is much more complex than that. So how does a contractor get approval for their system? Well, first of all, I want to be clear that, um, if you do research, you'll come across some vendors who, all but guarantee you approval. Or they say they have a DCA approved system and they make it sound as if if you install their system, you're golden. And and that's not true. Because again, back to the first part, it's more than just the software. But there's no, the government doesn't uh, approve you as well. When they're looking at stuff, they say, oh, you use XYZ software, you've got a leg up. That's not true. I recently talked to a contracting uh, to an auditor, government auditor, and she had audited some a company that uses one of the big brand name uh, software, and the the client had failed. And she had also recently uh, audited a company that was using a small uh, QuickBooks. We've already mentioned them, but they were using QuickBooks and got approved because they were doing all of the right things. The real key is to make sure that you understand that it's not the software that approves it. And even if you have an auditor, let's say DCAA is your auditor, it's not DCAA that's actually approving your system. They are simply performing a survey uh, of your system and making a recommendation. The contracting officer is the person who makes that final determination. They take the feedback from the auditor in the report and, and make their determination from there. And with that, I want to add in, you know, a lot of people know that DCAA is backlogged and has been for a long time on all of their audits. Uh, Trying to get DCAA to come in and do an audit uh, can be very difficult, especially if you're small. Um, You just may not be big enough for them to, to be on the radar unless somebody really pushes. Also, you cannot call DCAA and ask for an audit. Um, It has to be requested by the contracting officer. So, 
then people say, well, what happens in that case? I'm a, I'm a small contractor. I'm going after this uh, cost reimbursable contract. I haven't ha I have to have an approved system. DCAA, you know, I'm not on their radar. I'm too small. They're not going to come see me. What are my options? Some of the government agencies, so think of like uh, uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, they have their own audit staff. And they will sometimes send their own audit staff out to do uh, that survey. And again, the same thing applies. They're only providing a report back to the contracting officer. The other option is to have a third party CPA come in and do this. This is an area that is still, I would say, relatively new to government contracts. There are more agencies and offices uh, utilizing this and, and open to this. Uh, they recognize that DCA, again, is backlogged and they're not getting the work out of there that they would like. And so you will see a number of the RFPs state that, you know, you need to have a, an approved system and it could be, could be from a prior government approval or it could be a recommendation letter from a CPA. Um, so you do have a few options there. A lot of good stuff there. And it brought up a couple of questions for me. The, the first one is, you know, does this happen each contract? So do I get an audit every single contract or is it, hey, I get, a, I get an audit uh, on say contract number one, and then that audit's good for two years. I just show it next time I'm trying to win a contract. Because again, I, I know the answers to some of these questions, but I think some of the people listening have them. So I'm trying to be their voice here because I, I think this is a complex area. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's interesting because when you get an approval, there's no expiration date. So some people might think it's two years or three years, and that's not true. Um, you can actually invalidate your approval the very next day. Oh wow because the, the survey is based upon the system that's in place at the time they're doing the survey. So they're looking at your policies, procedures, software, reports, and saying, okay, this contractor has everything in place that satisfies the requirements. If the very next day you take a portion of your policies and procedures and decide you're no longer going to follow them, that has the potential to invalidate your approval that you just received. Mm. And so what I see happen is uh, when I talk to clients, they say, oh, I have an approval from five years ago or six years ago. And so I start asking questions. Have you replaced any key personnel? Have you made any changes to your policies and procedures? Have you updated any of your software? Have you introduced any new <laughs> software, such as maybe a new timekeeping system? Any of those things requires a new approval. Mm, wow. I mean, that, and that really gets to my next question that I was actually going to ask was, you know, what, what all does the approval process involve? Because you, you just hit on a couple of things uh, around like, like swapping out staff. Talk, talk to me about the approval process and some of the things that you are surveyed on, as you say. So, if you look at, I guess so let's walk through, you know, they're, they're going to look at your policies and procedures. How do you uh, handle travel expenses? Um, how do you handle unallowable expenses? Are they appropriately segregated? Do you have a policy, you know, that identifies um, uncompensated overtime, which is, you know, your, your salaried employees who are working more than 40 hours a week? So you have a policy that addresses that, and the key personnel is an interesting one because some people, you know, if you change a manager or a supervisor in a department, that can have a huge effect. 
the new person coming in may not realize uh, the policies and procedures, even though they're written down. You know, I don't. I, I think it's safe to assume that and admit, really, that we don't always get out the policy and procedure book every single day for everything that we do, right? We get comfortable right. with it, we feel like we know it, and we keep doing it. Well, what happens if somebody's out sick? What if somebody is out for an extended period of time? What if you lose somebody and now somebody else comes and you've hired a replacement for that position? They may not be as familiar with some of the nuances in your policies and procedures and may not be doing all of the things that need to be done. And so that's why the the key personnel question always comes up. Yeah, that, I mean that's a big one, and you're, you're absolutely right. And and I always tell people, especially in sales, when it comes to policies and procedures, you've got to at least have a cheat sheet. If you're not going to crack the book open and look at it, uh, you know, I have a cheat sheet on my desk for a lot of things like that because you will forget steps, you will forget yes. policies, you will forget procedures. I always tell people, you will forget your name, your phone number, your ad. You will forget things like that from time to time. And it's great to have a cheat sheet, at least as a guide. In, in a situation like this where it's so critical, I, I can see, you know, having ongoing training around it. You know, there's just a lot of different aspects of this. Um, that it, It's something that sounds so easy to take care of. It just takes the time and, and the diligence to, to stay on top of it. So... A couple of questions that I know people are, are wondering right now. First one is, how long does it take? Because I know people are thinking, how long does it take to put together my policies and procedures and to uh, you know, make sure the, the accounting system is done properly and train my folks and, and all that kind of stuff, and then go through the audit process? So if it's just a matter of you know, evaluating the policies and procedures, getting them tightened up, maybe you need to write some that you don't have, doing the training uh, and going through the audit is certainly several weeks. I mean, you're probably, could be 12 to 16 weeks. Oh, wow. And a lot of, you know, the answer to this is, uh, it's one of those, it really depends. It depends on, you know, how much do you already have in place as far as your policies and procedures? How, how good are they? How much training have you already done with your employees? Obviously, the more that's done, then it's easier to go through this process. Um, you know, if you are a small company and you've never had an approved system and you've never jumped through all these hoops before, I would say you're looking at the high end of that and, and again, possibly uh, even longer. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that, that could be a long time. And, and again, it's one of those things you don't want to start because, hey, there's an RFP we want to bid on. Uh, you know, because this is going to be outside that time. So getting it started way ahead of time is a, a really good idea. So how much does it cost and, and maybe what costs are involved in getting an approved system? So again, the cost uh, area is another one that, is, that I say it really depends. Uh, there are a number of factors that go into it. Uh, there are software solutions on the market that range from uh, a few thousand dollars uh, for an investment to well over a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Again, if you're a larger organization, very complex, multiple sites, you know you're probably on the high end of that uh, of that scale. If you're a service provider only and you have uh, one location and maybe a dozen or twenty employees, you're you know obviously on the lower end of that scale. Hmm. 
If you do manufacturing, um, that makes a system very complex. You've got to have a software that can handle that. Uh, and that alone is going to drive up your um, software expense. But there are, there are five main buckets uh, of cost to consider. One is the software licensing. So that's your basic, you know, what's the fee out of the box to get the software and get it installed or get it hosted. Your annual maintenance, and you will definitely want to have a maintenance plan because you want to get any patches that come along. Uh, software companies, depending on who you go with, they do things a little bit differently, um, but at the very least, again, you want the patches. Some software companies offer enhancements and new functionality, new features with some of those updates. So you, you, know, you might want to be part of that. But also that maintenance um, usually includes you know, phone support. Sometimes it's a separate fee, but you want to make sure that you've got somebody that you can reach out to. You know, let's say you get a new contract type. Maybe you've been doing uh, T&M for a while and fixed price, and now you're getting ready to do a cost reimbursable. And even though the system is capable of handling cost reimbursable, this might be your first time through and you need somebody to help with, you know, making sure you get the fields and everything set up appropriately. Hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, something there that was, I thought was really important for the bigger companies that are listening, or maybe maybe mid-sized. You know, let, let's say you're a $100 million company, and you're mostly commercial. You're now dabbling in the government space. You've got several divisions of what you do. Your government space is only, you know, you're only projecting 3 to $5, maybe $10 million in revenue out of that. Do I still need to put this accounting system across my whole enterprise or can I segregate it down to my government division? Because I've got to assume if I'm going to go enterprise wide and I've got products and services and all kind of complexities, it's going to be much more expensive to go enterprise wide versus focused in on my government division. Can you segregate it like that? Or if you're in, you're in and it needs to be company wide. No, it's a, and I think the with the scenario that you just presented, and, and I come across this at times, the companies have a relatively small uh, amount, which would kind of, to me, signal a couple of things. It's very likely that they have just fixed price contracts, so they're not uh, on the radar for TNM or cost reimbursable, and they don't have to have an approved system. There's certainly some things they should still be doing from an accounting standpoint. Um, but they probably, you know, in reality, in that scenario, they probably don't need uh, a fully approved system. Now, to answer the second part of your question is, do I have to implement it across the board? And the answer is no. Um, there are plenty of, of medium to large companies who do have different divisions. They perform and they have some divisions or services that the government doesn't purchase. Um, so as long as they can clearly segregate that um, in their functions and in their inventory or their whatever the whatever the resources that are being employed uh, to service those government contracts. If those can be clearly segregated, yes, you can uh, create a separate accounting system uh, just to handle those costs. You know, I, I think that's one of the game changers that I'll take away from from this podcast today because I, I think a lot of people get into this with misinformation or a lack of knowledge and they do a Google search and somebody's going to go to their boss with their head hanging low and say, we got to do this enterprise wide. 
and and, right. and it's just a Google search that just makes somebody go and start reviewing hundred thousand dollar systems instead of five or ten thousand dollar systems. And once you've pulled the trigger and made that mistake, you can't get the money back. So I, I think it's a very important point that that you nailed there around you can segregate the business divisions and do this properly. So as we're starting to run low on time here. I want to give you a chance to talk about two things. One, your advice on uh, avoiding some of the the common pitfalls and making this less painful. And then just any final thoughts you have for our listeners. Well, I think the pitfalls, uh, one of them that you just mentioned is, you know, the Internet is a great resource. There's a lot of information out there. I would say don't rely on any specific, on any one particular website. You know, do your research and because I think if you begin to query some different sites, you'll hopefully get enough information that you can separate it. Reach out to a professional, whether it's somebody like me, maybe a CPA or somebody that you're already using. Um, you know, I think the the thing, and I hate to say that it depends, but it really does. Every business is so unique in the type of products or services that they do, the mixture um, the amount, the size and types of contracts. There's so many factors that go into making these decisions. I can't sit here uh, on our podcast and tell you, you know, you meet these criteria, you absolutely have to do that, or you meet those criteria and you absolutely have to do that. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of gray area and it's kind of sorting through that and making the best decision that you can make. Yeah, and I, I think that's really good advice. And, you know, the one thing or the one caveat I'll add on the CPA side is I wouldn't just call my local small town CPA that just does tax returns on this. That, that, that guy probably doesn't get it. So I, I would maybe ask them, hey, are, are you involved with government contracts? Do you understand DCAA? Do you understand what's going on with a lot of this stuff? And if they don't, you need to move on. You need to get a recommendation from somebody else. You need to call Robert and say, Robert, you know, here's the situation. What do I do? And I think even if you spend a little bit of cash on just some advice and decide to go on your own, it's so much smarter to call an expert like Robert right out of the gate and get that information because it could save you tens of thousands of dollars. And more importantly, when you contracts, because that's really, that's why we're talking about this. We're not talking about this so you can get educated on accounting systems. We're talking about this so you can win more contracts and be properly awarded stuff that you deserve. So if you're listening to this today and you don't know about this subject and, and this is something that you know you're going to have to go through or you foresee it, pick up the phone, get on the website, reach out to Robert, ask him to get on the phone with you and walk through this. I think, I think that's a big point. People do not invest enough in the experts up front. And this, again, this is not like just calling any old accountant in the phone book. This is very specialized and you need somebody with the special knowledge. So, so Robert, I, I thank you for coming on today given us a lot of wisdom about this. I think you've educated me on different aspects of it, and, and I hope you've educated the listeners here. I think it's been really good, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Yeah. And uh, and I want to have you on again sometime and maybe just talk DCAA because I, I, we actually have a client that uh, just reached out to us about it and they were going through it and they're, they're almost done with it. But it's just, it's an intimidating subject. So I think there's a lot of ground we can cover specifically back in that. So, so thank you again. I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. You can also learn more about each of our guests by visiting the official Game Changers website at rsmfederal.com forward slash Game Changers, where we'll have links to their bios, their episodes, and contact information, things like that. So if you want to you want to call Robert, you can get on there and have all his contact information is linked in. All that will be on there. Um, and last but not least, please visit our sponsor for today's episode, the Federal Access Program at rsmfederal.com forward slash FA for more information on how you can find and win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Changers.